The State Advisory Councils of Keep Our Republic have incredible leaders who I'm honored to work with each and every day. They bring unique perspective and help guide our nonprofit's programming and messaging. They care deeply about the future of their home communities and having elections where their neighbors can trust the process and the outcome. They routinely have demonstrated the importance of putting country over party. Today, I'm looking forward to getting to know better Ken Cockrell in Detroit, Michigan. When Ben Franklin was leaving the Constitution Hall, he was asked if the founders had decided to have a republic or an autocracy. And he said, we have a republic if we can keep it. Ken Cockrell, thanks so much for taking the time. No problem. Good to be here. Well, thank you for the perspective that you've lent over recent months to keep our republic. You're there in the city of Detroit. You know every nook and cranny and corner of the city of Detroit. Give folks, though, a sense of your background of how you, what, what you read a public service. Yeah, so I I am not currently an elected official, but I did serve as an elected official representing Detroit and Wayne County for a number of years. The first major political office I held was a Wayne County Commission seat. I represented the Wayne County Commission's fifth district, which at that time was basically the southwest part of the city of Detroit. And I ran, which was back in 1994, ran against an incumbent. It was nothing personal, but I just felt that I could do a better job than he was in serving the, the needs of the district. So I ran on the Democratic ticket and was successful in defeating that incumbent and took office as a county commissioner representing that area in January of 1995. I served on the county commission for three years, so that's a term and a half. The reason why I ended up being a, a second only half term as compared to a full term is because at a certain point while I was serving as a county commissioner, I got to the point where I realized that if I took a look at what most of my constituents were calling me about or emailing me about or talking me about, the issues that were of concern to them, they were mostly city of Detroit issues. They weren't necessarily issues with county service delivery or county policy, county legislation or laws. So I started gradually to come around to the idea of thinking that if I best want to serve the needs of my constituents, city government rather than county government is where I need to be. So I actually in 1997 ran for an open Detroit city council seat. City council in Detroit is different because it's uh, completely nonpartisan. And at that time, it's actually since changed. But at that time, there were no districts. So you had nine council seats and all council members served the city on an at-large basis. So I ran for that council seat, got elected, took office in January of 1998. I ended up serving a total of 16 years, four terms on the Detroit City Council. The third term, I actually became president of the Detroit City Council. So I led the council. And interestingly enough, during my third term, probably about midway through it, I actually wound up having to step into the role of mayor on an interim basis. So I served as mayor of the city of Detroit for about nine months. The circumstances under which that came about are somewhat unusual and unique because what happened is that my predecessor, former mayor Kwame Kilpatrick, wound up going to jail because of some corruption issues that kind of came to a head and resulted in him having to leave office. I did run to actually keep the job because I had always had ambitions about becoming mayor of the city of Detroit. Unfortunately, I was not successful and uh, lost that race. 
So I returned to city council, served out the rest of that term. And then I did one more term on the city council before leaving at the end of 2013. Since then, I have mostly worked in the nonprofit sector. I led a couple of different nonprofits here in the city of Detroit. And for about the past five years or so, I've been in the private sector. I have my own consulting company and I work with uh, a number of private sector clients, mostly on government affairs, government relations issues, and business development issues. So that's my background in a nutshell. So I think the main takeaway for listeners is Detroit, like the back of your hand, and you care deeply about the city. And when I think, yeah, I'm not from Detroit, but when I think 1995 versus 2023, a lot's changed. Share with listeners poignant memories from the ups and from the downs during that period. Yeah, it's definitely interesting because Detroit for a long time has been a national, in some cases, even international punching bag. You may have heard or and if you have heard it, you may remember that there used to be a phrase, well, the last person out of the city of Detroit turned out the lights. Detroit has been held up over the years as the poster child for urban dysfunction. But a lot of that has changed, I would say, really like in the past 10 to 15 years, because there has been a tremendous amount of economic development that has taken place in the city of Detroit. A lot of new investment. You have seen businesses coming into the city of Detroit, probably the biggest and most notable one is uh, Quicken Loans at Bedrock. CEO, CEO Dan Gilbert had made a commitment probably a little over 10 years or so ago to come to the city of Detroit. And he did that and then some. He located in headquarters in downtown Detroit, bringing with him at that time, probably about 3,000 employees. I think that number has since gone up. He's made a tremendous amount of investment in the city of Detroit. I think at this point, I think Bedrock, which is his real estate development company, which is now also headquartered in Detroit, probably owns something on the order of a little less than 150 buildings in the city. So that really was a catalyst that helped to spur a lot of additional development and investment in the city of Detroit. So, so now more often than not, you're often hearing people holding Detroit up as like the poster child for how to stage an urban comeback and how to redevelop a city that had lost a lot of investment. And my personal take on that is I think both of those are very extreme positions and that the real truth is somewhere in the middle. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff happening in the city of Detroit, but we still got a lot of work to do. Uh, the city has still, according to the U.S. Census, continued to lose population, which is a trend that I think we have to not only stop, but ultimately reverse. And Detroit's very large also. There's probably something on the order of about somewhere between, I think, 136 to 138 square miles in the city of Detroit. So to put that in perspective, as far as landmass is concerned, I think that you could fit the cities of New York, Boston, and San Francisco in the city of Detroit. It's that big and that spread out. And even though there has been a lot of redevelopment, you have large swaths of the city of Detroit which are abandoned and the renaissance that we always talk about has yet to touch those areas. So there's still a lot of work to be done. I think we're, there's some good stuff happening. We're on the right track, but there's still a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done to restore the city. And just to remind listeners, what is the population these days? So put it in perspective at the height of Detroit's population, which probably would have been the mid 1950s, Detroit was home to probably about 1.4 million people. According to the most recent U.S. Census, I think the projections were that Detroit was probably 
I don't remember exactly, but I want to say somewhere between 670,000 to 700,000 people. So that's, that's a pretty massive exodus that's taken place over the decade. So you used the term a few moments ago, punching bag, and I want to pivot a bit to, to politics. Obviously, Keep Our Republic as a nonprofit doesn't engage in electoral politics, but you can't talk about the themes that we care deeply about, strengthening our democracy without talking about Michigan politics. So to just give listeners a, the flavor of as you move 100 miles north, 200 miles north uh, into the state of Michigan, is Detroit a punching bag for other Michiganders? And all that being said, where I'm coming from is Detroit is the largest city. Yep. It, it is the bulk of, of votes for Democratic candidates uh, in the state. So give listeners a little flavor of, uh, of all this in recent years. Yeah, so Detroit... Well, let's start by first talking about the politics of the city of Detroit. Detroit is, and let's talk about the demographics too. The city is uh, probably something on the order of about 80 to 85% African-American. Detroit votes overwhelmingly Democratic. I think uh, it typically is probably somewhere in the 90 to 90 plus percent range of overwhelmingly voting for Democratic candidates. But even though it's the largest city in the state by far, despite the population loss, you can maybe travel 30 to 45 minutes outside the city of Detroit in certain directions. And not only did the demographics racially change completely, but also politically they change. So Macomb County, uh, although it's become more and more democratic over the years, has a history of electing Republican candidates. If you go further outside the city of Detroit, or maybe if you go like west to like the Kent County area where Grand Rapids is the largest city in Kent County. And I'm not sure what the politics are of Grand Rapids these days, but I know like a lot of the surrounding areas, very much overwhelmingly Republican in terms of how they vote. So you definitely do see partisan splits when you move to other parts of Michigan. Now, that varies. Like you have some college cities, like for example, Ann Arbor, which is the home of the University of Michigan, which I think generally tends to uh, be very democratic or Lansing, which I think is also democratic Lansing home of Michigan state. But a lot of the surrounding areas outside of Lansing and a lot of the surrounding communities, they generally tend to, they swing Republican. So it's not like Michigan is an overwhelmingly Republican or democratic state. If you look at presidential elections over the years, it's occasionally gone either way. Yeah. And in 2016, it, which seems like ages and ages ago, but if memory serves me, Michigan was decided by roughly 11,000 votes. Imagine none of us have a crystal ball over the next 40 some weeks, but we have every reason to believe that Michigan's going to be just as close. And there's an open Senate race that'll make the body politic even more charged. So with all that in mind, you had a front row seat in 2016 and then more so in 2020 things got fairly hot up there and was past prologue give folks a sense of what happened and what if anything has been done to hopefully turn down the temperature a bit and put up some mitigation barriers yeah 26 2016 was relatively quiet but it i think at least in terms specifically of the city of detroit and the dynamics here and how they changed from 2016 to 2020, there may definitely be some lessons to be learned from that. Let's talk about like Detroit in 2016. Let's look at the votes from an absentee ballot standpoint, specifically on those. And I'm going to 
explain why that's relevant. In 2016, and I actually had a conversation with our city clerk, Janice Winfrey, about this recently, as well as the director of elections for the city of Detroit, Dan Baxter. But if we were to look, for example, at absentee ballots specifically in 2016, about 80,000 absentee ballot votes were cast in 2016 in that year's presidential election. In 2020, that number more than doubled to 179,000 absentee ballot votes being cast because that was such a critically important election. And that really led, according to what I was told, I didn't really have a front row seat to this because I wasn't actually there, but according to what I've been told from first person account from people who actually worked this location, Huntington Place, which is a large convention center in the city of Detroit, is the site of where the counting for elections takes place in presidential election years. So what I was told is probably maybe around a little bit after 10 o'clock when the numbers for Michigan started to come in and they were showing that Michigan was going for Biden and that one of the deciding factors in this was huge Democratic turnout in Wayne County, which generally tends to go Democratic. And Detroit specifically, which pretty much always goes Democratic and was going in huge numbers because of the dynamics that I just laid out for Biden in that year. So shortly after 10 p.m. and those numbers started to come in, that there were a lot of Trump supporters and people in the MAGA crowd who were like, something's fishy here, something in the milk is not white. We need to get down to the Huntington Center. We need to have our challengers aggressively challenging the outcome because we think something is going on. And then rumors also, according to what I've heard, began to swirl about city of Detroit poll workers, the people who were actually handling and counting the vote. Rumors about everything from them going to work to get ready to counter the votes with, account the votes with lunch boxes filled with ballots. There was even stories about a catering truck that instead of actually bringing in food for the poll workers, was actually staffed by people who had rates of votes. So that resulted, once the word was getting out through social media, that there you probably had maybe at the height, maybe as many as two, 300 Donald Trump supporters who were down at Huntington Place. At that time, it was called the TCF Center. The branding hadn't changed, who were basically challenging a vote cow. And using the phrase, which of course has now become famous, stop the steal. Can we expect something like that again next year? I don't think it's unlikely. I do know having spoken with, with Dan Baxter and with Clerk Winfrey that they are preparing for that and they are expecting it. Uh, Clerk Winfrey made it very clear to me in my discussion with her yesterday. In fact, I actually took some notes. And she said that uh, we will continue to do what we did before to protect our poll workers and the polling process. It's our number one priority. So I think you can probably expect that there's probably going to be heightened security at Huntington Place next year for the vote count that will likely include a mix of, mix of police presence, city of Detroit police presence, and probably some additional level of private security. So yeah, past may indeed be prologue in this particular case. Well, hopefully it isn't. Hopefully there is no civil disorder in the streets of Detroit around Huntington Place. And just to put a finer point for listeners. So at the end of the night, 
hundreds of precincts send their data essentially to this central count facility, this big convention center. And this is the same that happens across dozens of other counties in, in Michigan. Give listeners a sense, you are not a creature of Lansing uh, by any means, um, but give folks uh, a sense of what's happened uh, statewide. Uh, there's been a Proposition 2 and there's been other initiatives that the legislature has taken up in recent years. And then also some of your statewide elected officials have been on the receiving end of some very heated rhetoric and even some very scary attempts. Proposition 2 has basically expanded people's ability and opportunity to vote. It's resulted in, for example, things like, I think the total is nine days of early voting, in-person voting, meaning that nine days prior to the election, if you want to go to your elections commission and cast a vote in person, you can do that up to nine days before the date of the actual election. There's also now a permanent absentee ballot list, which is good because one of the things that I found is that living in a large city like Detroit, it's pretty easy for people to vote here in person if they want to. Like for me, I can literally walk out my front door. I go around the corner, keep walking for less than five minutes. I'm at my polling place. But I know for a lot of, depending on where you live, if you live in maybe a suburban location or maybe in a more of a rural location, your local polling post may be miles away. But if you've requested an absentee ballot, now I think the way the system works is there's a permanent list. So it gets sent to you automatically. You don't have to ask for it the way you used to. And I know for the past several years, even though my polling place is so close, I pretty much vote my absentee ballot all the time these days. I just found it more convenient to fill out the ballot, mail it in, or if I happen to be going past a, a location where I know there's a drop box, I will just throw it in the drop box. So it's a lot more convenient. So these are a lot of the things that actually resulted from proposal two which frankly make it easier to vote. Uh, more recently, and it's interestingly enough, Jocelyn Benson, who was our Secretary of State here in Michigan, actually was in town here in Detroit last week, just prior to, to Thanksgiving, to address the city council. And she had talked about a new initiative that she has created, which seems to be specifically kind of focused on maintaining and reinstilling confidence in the vote called Voter Confidence Councils. This is a process that's been announced, which I guess will be rolling out in January of councils throughout the state of Michigan, but again, primarily targeting and working with communities of color who have often been targeted by campaigns to misinform or deceive about when the actual vote day is or other things to try to minimize the vote. So the goal of the statewide voter confidence councils really will be to make sure that the proper and correct information about the process is out there. But yes, you are correct. Secretary of State Benson, as well as other officials, have in the past been targets of protest, sometimes even at their homes. People who saw them as being corrupt and trying to rig or swing an election away basically from Donald Trump, because these protests have always, from what we've seen here in Michigan, really been organized and mounted by people who were Donald Trump supporters. And obviously Donald Trump continues to be a factor. And I think from a polling standpoint, I think it's still well and away uh, ahead of most of the other Republican presidential candidates. So I certainly would not rule out the possibility that these sorts of protests targeted at election officials 
or even at the Secretary of State are going to be a thing again in 2024. Well, I really appreciate that perspective and you've been super generous with your time as we, we wind down. As we're recording, it also has been quite heated with the protests on the campus of University of Michigan. And I would venture to say that those protesters who have been quite aggressive are not fans of President Trump. So we're seeing on both extremes this tendency to get into the streets. But I wanted to ask you, the podcast is called If We Can Keep It, and it comes from the old Ben Franklin line. We asked this of all of our guests as he was walking out of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. And the rumor is that a woman asked him, what are y'all doing in there? And he said, it's a republic, madam, if you can keep it. So with all this in mind, Ken, everything you've seen over your incredible career and the changes in the city of Detroit and how heated Michigan politics are, you generally optimistic that we can keep this republic, this democratic experiment? Cautiously optimistic. And the reason why I say cautiously optimistic is because I have been different polls that have been done in recent years where people have been asked about their thoughts on democracy and how important or unimportant it is. And it's disturbing to see some of these polls where the findings essentially show that there are some people who would accept some level of a dictatorship and don't necessarily think that having a democracy as we know it today is all that critical to the future of uh, our country. So that's worrisome. So I'm optimistic, but again, cautiously optimistic. I don't think we can take anything for granted. So then the corollary and final question is what can residents in the city of Detroit, what can Michiganders, what can listeners of this podcast over the year ahead do to, to help strengthen our democracy and, and make sure that we go into our 250th birthday as a country with a thriving democracy? Uh, three things, get, in, get informed, get involved, and get active. Amen to that. All right. Well, Ken Cockrell, thank you so much for being in the trenches and lending your perspective to our listeners and uh, helping out month in, month out with Keep Our Republic. Yeah, no problem. It's been a pleasure.